Welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and this is the first in a three-part series on the IED. IED is the acronym for Improvised Explosive Device. It is rather an innocuous term for something so vicious, haphazard and deadly as a bomb, a homemade bomb. And perhaps that's part of the problem. Homemade sounds all too amateur and trifling. So in the next few episodes, I will be discussing the IED with a soldier who has fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, a surgeon who has operated on the men and women from our armed forces who've been wounded and killed by IEDs, and an expert on IEDs with knowledge of their form, deployment and legacy. IEDs were responsible for two-thirds of the UK Armed Forces casualties in both the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Part 1. The Infantry Soldier My guest today was born in England and grew up in Wiltshire. He came from a military family and in 2006, aged 23, he joined the British Army, serving in the Rifles, a distinguished infantry regiment formed in the time of the Napoleonic Wars and popularised in Sharp's Rifles books and TV series by Bernard Cornwall. He saw active duty in both Iraq 2007 and Afghanistan in 2009. He left the army in 2014 and lives with his wife and children in London. He is an artist and writer. He is also the creative director of the Chelsea History Festival, which is held every year in the last week of September in London. His first novel, Anatomy of a Soldier, was published in 2016 to great acclaim. Alan Bennett stated it was marvellously told and engrossing. I know of nothing quite like it. And Hilary Mantel praised it as tense and unflinching, but alive to every nuance of feeling. His latest book, Hybrid Humans, Dispatches from the Frontiers of Man and Machine, published in February 2022. Harry Parker, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Tom. Well, it's, um, we've been meaning to do this for a little while um, because we have a mutual friend called James Jackson who is my co-pilot on this particular podcast, but he's not here today. Well, um, at, least, at least we'll be able to get, get a word in edgeways. Then. I know, exactly. OK, Harry, well, before we get into um, the central bit and talking about IEDs, just give me a little bit of background on your, your upbringing and your family. So I'm, I'm one of those people who has a very military background. My, I, think, I think until I left the army, there'd been someone serving in the military for over 150 years. Um, so it was very much uh, on the radar for me to join, join the military. But actually, I, I have a slightly strange um, route in because I went to art school and I always wanted to be an artist. And I never did uh, any of those things that you can do at school like uh, CCF, CCF. Mm. yeah, or, or, or OTC at a university. I never did any of that because I just it was never it was never really something I thought I was going to end up doing. But lo and behold, whether it was nature or nurture, I um yeah I joined uh, I joined and went to Sandhurst in two thousand and six. Yes, I, I was rather similar actually. When I, I I was the same, I wasn't military at all. I was in the CCF, but I was terrible. Um, and um, but then I ended up at Sandhurst, and it was rather a rather a a uh, good way to do it, I think, because I didn't spend the whole of my childhood dreaming about being a soldier. Okay, so um, family in the military, um, and your father is a soldier, was a soldier, he's retired now, is he? In the same regiment he, as he, you. 
he, he is. He was in the same. He was in the same regiment, and he obviously he was at the sort of we were at opposite ends of of the hierarchy. He was a general by the time I joined, and actually by the time I left, he left a little bit before me, but he was a, he, he was full general by then. Um, and we, what was interesting is I was sort of at the very much the lowest, lowest tactical level of these of these operations, Iraq and Afghanistan, and he was in the highest of command positions, um, and and even commanded uh, when when General McChrystal McChrystal was sacked by President Obama and and David Petraeus took over. Mm. Dad was in charge of the whole of Afghanistan for a couple of weeks, um, which which I think was a probably. An interesting experience for him, although he'll just say that or he was only in charge in, in sort of name only. So you went to Sandhurst and you joined the Rifles. H- how does that work with, fa- just for people who haven't been through the military, with joining, you know, a family regiment? How does that happen? So um, it might be a little bit differently, different now, but at, at Sandhurst, there's quite a sort of extensive regimental selection process. Um and because Santa is quite a competitive environment, so you're going through a number of different selection processes, and they're really testing out how good you are. And in that process, also all the regiments are sort of sniffing around in a way for the best people for them. And as ever, you know, different regiments need different types of people. You know, if you want to be an engineer, then there's it's a very different skill set. And so, so throughout Santa, there was a sort of route, and I, I very much wanted to join that regiment. And then, you know, I was lucky and got in and then you go on and you do actually where the real training happens, which was in Brecon, which is called the Platoon Commander's Battle Course, which was a sort of four month course and where Sandhurst is very much a leadership course, although the way they teach it is through infantry tactics. It was only when you get to Brecon that actually that's where the sort of the real training in terms of infantry tactics and the sort of seriousness of of it, if you like, um, really sort of really sort of happened and then very quickly i was deployed to iraq um so i left i left training and then three four weeks later i was uh, in basra right were you were, were, was the regiment already out there and you went to join them yes they were they were a month ahead of me uh, or a few weeks ahead of me so I, I met my platoon for the first time out uh, in in basra which was an interesting experience and uh, how long did you serve in iraq six six to seven months and and what was going on at that time in Basra? Two thousand seven was a very interesting period in 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 southern Iraq. There was all sorts of um, changes happening in in the sort of I think politically we'd had enough, to put it bluntly, the UK, and we were trying to pull out. And also the situation on the ground in Basra was becoming quite difficult. Uh, we were trying to pull out, and the the. Iranian-backed forces there, Jaish al-Mahdi, or JAM as we called them, were getting more and more sort of brazen in the city. And so we were trying to patrol a city of 2 million people with a battle group, sort of 600 soldiers and, and the attachments. And I had, um, so a platoon was four fighting vehicles and we had a thing called the Bulldog, which was um, which was always entertaining because I'd get in it and the first thing I'd notice that as someone who's six foot, it was very tight and small. And I think that was because it was this, there was a there was a sign next to me that sort of had the date that it was made. And the vehicle I was in was made in 1962, I think it was. And these, this vehicle had been in service since then. Of course, it had had a new engine, new power pack. It had had very clever armor on it and things like that. But essentially, we're sitting in this the same old bit of kit. Yeah, and then rumbling around the city and trying to, yeah, it was it was sort of hard to know what we were doing because that that was the moment where we withdrew from the city 
and we gave the palace, which is where we were based, so Basra Palace, we gave it back to the Iraqis. Uh, so I was in that final patrol that sort of left left the palace and we redeployed, as we put it. I'm sure the the Jihad Shamadi would say that we retreated, but we withdrew. To, we withdrew. That was um, what we were always we, told to say. You withdraw, you yeah. don't retreat. Yeah, yeah. We we withdrew to the air base, which is where most of the British forces were, which was sort of out on the outskirts of Basra um, and did some slightly different um, but very interesting operations out onto the border with Iran. So it was a very interesting time and actually although people think of Afghanistan as being more lethal, actually, for me, that time in Iraq was far more challenging, certainly in terms of leadership, uh, in terms of understanding what was going on at all levels of the conflict. And also, um, it felt very lethal. You know, they were using these shaped charges, which is a slightly different type of IED to what we'll be probably talking about later. But they were, the, these, they were designed to defeat armour. So mm-hmm. it would fire a plug of molten molten metal through the side of the uh, vehicle, and, and essentially because of the way very, very fast moving objects work, it, that that could kill people inside very easily, and it was very dangerous. And so, actually, in in four months, we we had um, I think it was eleven deaths in our battle group, which by any standards was a lot, and, and lots of casualties as well. But that um, was all. Um, there was no. It wasn't firefights at any point. It was all IEDs, was it? No, it was a mixture actually. So often there would be an IED, and then that would be followed up, followed up with an ambush or small arms. And we were doing sort of strike operations and things like that. So it was a mixture of everything, really. We had um, the other thing that sort of um, character characterised that tour was we had a lot of indirect fire, and that's people mortaring the camp. So we'd have sort of up to 70 rounds a day falling on the camp. So that was always um, an interesting experience, lying flat on the ground while mortars fall around you. And I, I think if I, that, that's something that, you, that is quite unusual these days in, in, the, in the military to be sort of lying on the floor while those sorts of rounds fall around you because there's literally nothing you can do but lie there and no. hope. And do they, oh, the mortar, there's a sort of, there's a thump and then a bang, is there? there? There's like two parts to it. So do you get a bit of a heads up that something's coming? Well, you get that heads up. It's, it slightly depends on the type of round. They used to fire rockets as well. Uh, but what we had was a, essentially a radar. So it was a bit of kit that I'm sure was American, but sat on top of one of the high buildings and would pick up any rounds as they were in flight. So you'd get a siren often before you heard the um, firing point. And because of the way a mortar works, you'd hear the firing point before you heard the impact point but um but yeah, yeah so the, we had a number si- of different ways right and the siren would give you what a second to hit the deck or no no a little bit more than that maybe five ten seconds sometimes longer it sort of almost depend- it very much depended on what was being fired there was different types of mortars i'm going to get this all wrong it very feels a long time ago but there was a 60 millimeter mortar there's a 90 mil and what was interesting about it was that it was very clear that these mortars and the munitions were being and the shaped charges actually they're quite complicated bits of kit Mm. although you can make them homemade but they were being made most likely in iran and it was very much a proxy war which was you know which when you think about it now it's quite sort of it it was an interesting place to be when you were 23 absolutely Uh, you were thrown in in the deep end straight out of training um, okay, so that was Iraq. And then in 2009, well, so you, you came back from Iraq and then you were in the UK for a bit, were you? Um, a year or so, tra- doing training and sort of Yeah, absolutely. So so there was a sort of rotation. I think our rotation, about eight, we had about 18 months of training 
before we then redeployed to Afghanistan. And when you come back from Iraq, did you go sort of via Cyprus to decompress and all of that? Was that all part of the thing in those days? It was. Um, it was, although in my time in the army, that that process changed a lot. So partly because of the the the, the, the military was thinking much, you know, in that time we were learning about, or well, the military was learning about post-traumatic stress disorder and um, how to manage it. And so in that time, we, I think when I came back from Iraq, it was a few days in Cyprus. But by the time I left Afghanistan, not that that's the way I came back. I came back obviously through a different route. And we can talk about that later. But the soldiers who did come back through the decompression, I think it was much longer. Um, but yeah, I came back from Iraq. And I think 48 hours after being in Iraq. I was in a pub in, in London, and actually, that was quite a weird experience. Yes, with with friends who are civilians who have no concept of of, of anything more than stubbing their toe or falling off their bicycle. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So then, in two thousand and nine, you go, uh, you get deployed again with your regiment, the Rifles, to Afghanistan, and that was what was that called? Ops. They always had those names, Ops something or other. Yeah, so Iraq was called Optelic, yes. and I was on Telic 10. And then Afghanistan was Herrick, and I was on Herrick 10, uh, which was 2009. And we deployed in May, I think. Yeah, May. Yes, and that would be a six-month tour to, to Helmand. Absolutely, yeah. And we were, we were sort of uh, west <laughs> of Lashkagar in, in, a, in an area of Helmand near, near the Helmand River, which had been irrigated in the 60s or 70s by USAID so they it was a it was essentially an area which probably would have been much more much more desert than it was when we were there but there was this grid of you know a huge grid of of irrigation ditches that basically covered I don't know how far but a lot of a lot of um a lot of ground and and they were growing what cotton or something like that were they or what do they grow yeah, God, this is gonna. I'm sort of. They were growing a, a variety of different things, from sort of uh, you know, wheat and barley, I think, right. through to um, through to poppies. You know, yeah. the, the whole, the whole, the whole, uh, everything, the whole everything you might need. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, um, and then so you got out there with your platoon. Do you call it? You do well, call no, it a platoon I, in the in the rifles, do you? Because sometimes regiments have different names for things. You no, know, it's a platoon. Yeah, but. Actually, I, I re-rolled because I. It's quite rare to have a platoon for that long. You know, you do you do it for a couple of years and then you move on. And so I was actually an influence officer, which was the best way of describing it was sort of somebody who was trained to do the hearts and minds stuff, but it had been sort of I suppose been made more scientific than it was in Northern Ireland. And so I had been on a number of courses in that time right. to learn about. How you how essentially how you influence the local population to support us or or support the the government the sort of legitimate government of Afghanistan rather than support the insurgent. Okay, so was this wasn't job. just in villages. This is higher up when you're talking to politicians and so on. Is that what you were doing? Well, it works throughout every level. But the idea, my my role, so I was a company level intelligence officer. Sorry, I was a company level influence officer. And my, I had, we had our area of operations and it was my role to find out who all the, although obviously a lot of this information was passed down, it wasn't the standing start, but find out who the sort of local leaders were, who the, um, who, who would sort of have the surers, who the insurgents were, what the sort of tribal dynamics were, 
I mean, almost impossible to do as a white British person who didn't speak any um, Urdu or Farsi or mm. Pashto or any of the languages that are spoken. And so, so that was my role. But actually, most of the influence we did was was it was essentially a conflict zone. You know, most of the influence we were doing was with kinetic weapons. And what I mean by kinetic weapons is shooting. Yes. Um, actually, we're kind of come on to your book in a minute, but there is one of the chapters is, um, I think, describes very well um, the young officer in the novel who is uh, meeting a local leader and gives a, a very good feel for how much he's on the spot, the leader, you know, the Afghan, because he's not pro the the insurgents, but the problem is he has to live there and he has to deal with things and he's being threatened by by these people, that if he has anything to do with the, you and the soldiers and the Brits, um, his, his, you know, his daughter's going to have her head chopped off. I mean, it's really very, very, a very difficult situation for them to, to, to cope with. No, well, just with the recent, I mean, uh, lots of people have been asking me because because of the we've just withdrawn you know the US have just and everyone has just re- withdrawn from Afghanistan and so there's been a lot of people asking me you know how I feel about it uh, and I, I I sort of give a slightly crass an- answer where I, which is sort of I don't feel a huge amount because I don't firstly I don't really connect my service to anything political any particular war I mean I could have been sent anywhere and we'll get on to my injuries but I don't really connect them to any I don't sort of feel angry about them um, but also uh, you know. Iraq's not exactly a success story either. So you sort of have to live with these things. And I think the last thing is, I think I feel as, as sort of sad as anyone else who's a citizen of this country and has voted the government's in. You know, it's, it's obviously really, it's a horrible situation for the people who live there. The last thing I'd say, just going back to the thing about the, the local population and the leaders and how they had to sort of balance between the the insurgent and the, and the government. I think we have a, a, because we have quite a sort of strong, sense of what a state is here and what it feels like to be british or however we identify having been there i was just, you know some of these people had never even been to kandahar and that was 30 miles away let alone, i mean kabul could have been on the moon yeah had no allegiance. it's a bit of a, well it's a bit i mean it's, you've also got to be careful not to sort of paint the whole place with one brush but there were definitely people there and and who, who, well, there's a slight, slight apocryphal tale of British soldiers wandering into villages and the local population thinking they're Russians because they hadn't sort of realised the Russians had left from yeah. the 80s and 90s. But um, there is a sense that you know these people are are much more focused on uh, on you know tribal dynamics, their local village. You know, it, it is in a sense a little bit more of a feudal a feudal society. But you know, add in your G3 mobile phone um so so yeah i think that's all i'd say you know i think it doesn't necessarily feel like um uh, one state or one country and i think that was one of the reasons it was so difficult to have a have a sort of sort of meaningful uh, a, a meaningful impact there yes and and i think i think people do conflate the the story of the soldier on the ground with the strategic history of battles and wars and they can be very different things so when you were out there doing the influencer job, did yeah. you... What was influence your, officer was, yeah. Yeah, influence yeah. officer. So what was your general um, experience with IEDs? I mean, was this an everyday thing that there was stuff coming in, information, it was happening all the time and it was the main thing or was the was it sort of firefights and, and everything else as well? I mean, the firefights were daily, but they felt much less lethal. The... And and the, the enemy had worked out that the best way to 
to cause damage and and um, have a tactical impact on us, and it was having a strategic impact as well. We can get onto that later, but w- was to use IEDs. It was a very effective way of um, of constraining us, basically. So there were IEDs placed all over the place. It was like somebody described it to me when we were there as a nuisance minefield. Um, so they were everywhere, and a lot of our time and effort was spent marking where they are where where we thought they were and trying to get sort of intelligence about where they were placed but essentially they were placed on the routes that we used or the likely routes we used so any any road out of there and there weren't very many roads and i and what you have to remember is we actually spent a lot of our time and effort resupplying ourselves just being extended so i'm using quite a lot of military terms but no, being no, extended out there mm. in the in the when you when you push out and sort of project a force out into an enemy territory, keeping it sustained is hard work. And you can't do it all with helicopters. So every week we'd have a, a big convoy. Well, not necessarily that big, a but trucks. a convoy would come in. Mm. Yeah, trucks would have food, the post, water, fuel, weapons, ammunition would all come in. And to do that, the the convoy would have to be have its own protection of armored vehicles. It would have its own protection force, but it would then be handed through all the places it would be going. So it would go through all the camps and they will spread out sort of 10 kilometers apart. But to go to drive 10 kilometers sometimes would take 30 hours because every inch of road would have to be swept for IEDs. We would have to move out as a company and secure the road yes. before it came. So you'd you would essentially go and camp out along the road with your platoon and your sections. You'd place them all out over the over the ground and then you'd wait for these vehicles to come down and inevitably either one had a flat tire it fell in a ditch or it got blown up and had to be recovered every time you have to recover a vehicle that takes hours so often we'd be sat instead of collapsing back and then re re-securing the route we would just wait and obviously then you become you become quite uh quite vulnerable to attack and um, you're very actually, very was, tired as well by then you could be out for hours and hours and you're you know yeah, you're totally yeah. fried yeah know. dehydrated exhausted but also interestingly it was the time when uh we got to know the local population best because you have to be there so you and people would be working in the fields and there would be local you'd often be sort of asking people if you could sit on top of their roof and things like that i mean that's slightly unusual but you know using you're in their land and um that was when i could do a lot of my sort of real job it was just when you realized that everyone had disappeared from the fields for some strange reason any you knew any minute, well yes in i was going to say a, something's going <laughs> to happen yeah so, so happen, did the exactly. locals not get blown up that much it was just you guys or what or um did they get hurt i mean well? i don't know if, if anyone's ever done if there's any way of ever working it out but i suspect that the civilian casualties for ieds are just as I wouldn't be surprised if somebody said more civilians were were hurt and killed through IDs than soldiers. Um, and and often in the middle of the night we'd hear a bang, um, and and we knew that there were no uh, friendly forces out. So it would it would either it was just had gone somebody off in or the car. a dog or a, yeah, yeah or, or exactly. So and 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 I think from Bastion, which was the medical hospital where where British and American soldiers went to be sort of patched up more local civilians went through there than, than um, soldiers and often they were they were ied casualties 
Right. So would they, if, if somebody was hurt by a bomb or in crossfire, of a small arms fire or something, uh, would they then go to the military hospital and get treated? Was that the policy? Yeah, if they could get there, they um, and if they made, if they came to our camp, we would airlift them in the same way we, exactly the same way we would lift a, a airlift a, a coalition soldier, and, and they and, would get exactly the same care for, right. for frontline care. What you know, once they'd sort of, once they were surgically fixed, then they were sort of pushed back into the Afghan medical NHS yes. equivalent, um, which which is obviously not that robust, but. But yeah, like any conflict, the medical, you know, you treat any any person exactly the same. Okay, and then, uh, I don't actually have the date of it, but um, then you were out on patrol one, one day. Um, at what day? When was that? The 18th of July, 2009, yeah. And uh, just another another day in, in, in country? Yeah, another day in country, although we were trying to do something quite... Um, we had been out as a company trying to sort of ambush the enemy before they, they used to attack us every morning. So you, you'd wake up and the, the, you'd, the, the compound or the, our, our patrol base would be shot at. So we thought, oh, well, we'll try and get out there early and ambush them. Um, but as ever, when you try and do that, you can't keep yourself. It's very difficult to stay, stay sort of unseen. But even though we went out in the middle of the night, anyway, there was no one there. And lo and behold, that morning, no one attacked us. Uh, and then we were collapsing back to our our patrol base and I was leading the way back in and I stepped on, I stepped on an ID. And you were leading your patrol, your, your platoon, were you? Uh, a platoon? Well, it would, well, no. So I wasn't, uh, I, because I was an influence yeah. officer, I was sort of a, it was quite a cool role because you, I would, I would, didn't have very many responsibilities to other soldiers. I had a small team that worked with me, but they were all interpreters and specialists. Mm. So we were quite free roaming. So you attach yourself to, to a group. That was doing something yeah i was just part and we were working because of ieds they become cleared lanes that everyone walks down and so you there's a lot of single files go on and everyone walks in each other's footsteps because at the front you normally metal detect to clear the way and metal detecting was one way that we tried to spot ieds because mm. often they had um they had metal in them to do you know to do with their, the way they, they work, the way they're put together with with um, electronics and things, and w- the, the the whole company group, and it wasn't it was probably forty people. We didn't take everyone, but it was a company mission. So the company headquarters was out with us, and uh, as we collapsed back, I ended up being the lead person, and because I'm an officer and you're the leader, that's fine. And, and I just walked out across a field, and because the field was in sight of the camp. And also, I wasn't on a path. I didn't. I wasn't metal detecting because I I was taking a risk essentially. But it was a you know a risk I thought was was you know I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think they you know I didn't think it was a was a um, you know if I thought it was too much of a risk. But anyway, I did. I you know there was a there was a device in the middle of the field that I stepped on. And, and do you mind describing how what it felt like? Well, the book's a good place to start for that. The following is an extract from Harry Parker's book, Anatomy of a Soldier. Chapter 42. The Blast. I existed for a fraction of a moment. I was created by an explosive reaction from a device that functioned to form me. I passed through rock, through mud, through dust, through the air, through the sole of a boot. Through a man. I stamped through them all, folding them in shock and pressure and dragging them up with me. 
I'm also noise. Try bang, try boom, try dull thud thump, try ka-crump, try piercing ping, puncturing perforated drum. I crushed him against gravity. He couldn't stay whole, and I disintegrated his foot, slamming through it and bursting it open, foot and boot fragmenting in my wake. I forced them up with the dirt I punched up, up in my supersonic swell, tearing straight through skin. Trashing all that should be sacred. I was all around him and in him and through him, flaying a finger off, flashing flesh from a forearm, blasting a boot buckle deep inside him. I ripped up his leg, flapping his calf off in my wind. I stripped his trousers away and his penis fluttered in my storm. I pulled open his testicle. I dragged bone deep into his thigh, pushing through pink flesh and vessels, bursting open grey globules of fat. I went through him, shocking his nerves and muscles and jarring his spine, crushing him in his armour. I beat through his diaphragm and collapsed his lung and up, up his back, compressing his skull and banging it into his helmet and over him with dust and dirt into the sky in a pyre of bubbling, boiling brown. He would have snapped if I had existed for any longer, but he flexed in me and then flipped and clattered to the earth. And then I was spent, and wind dragged in to replace everything I'd blown out, all fleeting and invisible except for what I'd lifted, which now rained down around him, and my bang rolling out across the landscape. You know, I, that's where I really write about it. But I think what was, you know, the violence of it uh, and that sort of, the, the, the violence that can be contained in high explosives, they sort of get that impression. Um, being flipped over very quickly and sort of feeling like I lands on my head. I suppose the, 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 the thing that people often talk about is that, that feeling of, right, I'll just dust myself off and get up now in the first few seconds of after it happening and um my whole sort of body vibrating uh, sort of fizzing with um all sorts of feelings it was if you know my my nerve endings weren't really working yet and then uh quickly realizing that realizing that i wouldn't be getting up and then you know then some pretty i mean the sort of pain that i can't imagine now and i think the body's quite good at sort of making sure you can't remember what it was like but yeah i was Mm. I was pretty sure I was on the way out and that was the end. Um, and in a way it was, I mean, I died a number of times and had to be resuscitated. Uh, and in the, I was the, the helicopter, I was quite lucky. The helicopter was on, it was flying to pick up a local civilian, as we've just talked about, but who'd actually been bitten by a camel spider. Mm. So there was an American helicopter flying over the camp and almost saw it happen. So that the helicopter could land and they could get me into the helicopter much more quickly than they would have otherwise. And then I was back and in Bastion, which is this incredible trauma hospital in the middle of the desert. I mean, in the next book I've written, I talk about the fact that if I'd been blown up and had the same injuries in central London, I was I would be less likely to survive than I what than I was that where I'd had them really? in the middle of a desert. Because this trauma hospital was so had all the kit and all the right people critically right there and ready to ready to sort of do everything they needed to do. So in eighteen minutes, I was on the I was on the um, on the surgeon's table. And w- and what were your injuries, Harry? So when I was blown up, I lost my left leg below the knee to a traumatic amputation. 
I lost my finger, I lost a testicle, and my right leg was really, really badly um, sort of blown up on one side of it. And I had some other sort of shrapnel-type wounds to my arms. Um, just fast forward 10 days, once they got me back to Birmingham, there, then I lost my right leg above the knee to infection. So although I had that after the injury, it was so knackered that it was it had to come off later. And um, the first moment you kind of coming to, to terms with this, um, what was your greatest fear of, of injury? What, what, what kind of injury was the greatest fear you had? Or did you not have that thought as such? It, yeah, there's no sort of, I mean, I don't think there's any one moment where I sort of woke up and went, shit, I've lost my legs. Because, I mean, I, you, I sort of woke up over time, if that makes sense, coming out of sort of, anesthetic and you know lots of pain medication and things like that so, but i i think um you know I, I think for me there were it all felt quite hopeful quite quickly because i had a i think just had a very loving family i was lucky with my background and my education i didn't think oh my life's over i just thought oh i can go and do something else now but i think you know that loss of uh what is you know when you're a young fit soldier that loss of um, that sort of freedom and that physicality is is quite a big hit. You know, that's quite hard to take. Um, and I think that was probably the biggest thing. Okay, well, I think we should then come on to your your novel, The Anatomy of a Soldier, because it, it describes uh, young Captain Tom Barnes, who is blown up by an IED. Um, but it is a novel. And as I said earlier on, it's it's sort of uh, it works through the objects in the book. So the, it's the objects describing from their their particular angle what they see going on with you, whether it's a tourniquet or the bomb itself or the oscillating surgeon's saw, uh, the rug, your dog tags, um, and actually m- most difficult to read the handbag, really, your mother's handbag. The following is an extract from Harry Parker's book, Anatomy of a Soldier, Chapter 7, The Handbag. I was normally placed on the lime green tablecloth in the kitchen. That day I was next to the dog lead on the coffee-stained newspaper. The doorbell rang. The dog barked. The dark outline of two figures showed through the glass panels. She came in from the sitting room and shut the dog out behind her. She craned her neck to see. She wasn't expecting anyone. It was a man and a woman. He was wearing a regimental tie. They said her name. She nodded. They asked if they could come in. She gripped the door and didn't open it any wider and asked what had happened. She didn't want them to come in. She had imagined the horror of this moment, but she was numb. She was aware of the potential for grief. It curled around her throat and fluttered in her stomach. She remembered her son's smile and the last time he'd walked out of the gate and said that he would be fine, and she remembered wishing he wouldn't tempt fate like that. She remembered when he was eight and had cried on the way to school. She remembered when he finished training and how proud she'd been. She remembered she'd felt the same dread every time the doorbell had rung since he had been away. She remembered not wanting to go downstairs and the relief when it had been door-to-door salesmen and how much nicer she had been to them and now she wished she hadn't come downstairs. Maybe she could just take the dog for a walk, and they wouldn't be here when she came back. She didn't want to face this on her own. They asked again if they could come in. 
She let them in, but wanted them to go away and never return, to have never existed. She put the kettle on and told them they would want a cup of tea. It wasn't real until they said it. They told her it was fine and she should really sit down. They sat around the table and the man asked a number of questions, confirming who she was. She just wanted to know now, to just be told so the horror could start. She knew she was about to be damaged. It would change everything. He asked if she was his mother. Of course she was. The woman stood up. She looked grave and hadn't said anything since they had come in. She probably hated doing this. Let me make you a cup, she said, and went over to the kettle. She took a mug from the cupboard, but when she saw it said Mummy's Little Soldier written on it, she put it back and chose another. And then the man told her what had happened. Her son had been very seriously injured and was being operated on. It was the best frontline medical facility in the world. He said they didn't know many details yet, but he was very seriously hurt. He had lost a lot of blood and his left leg. That was all they knew at the moment. She was relieved. He wasn't dead. Her son was still alive. The man continued to talk and asked where her husband was and if she should call him. She reached over and picked me up, pulled my magnetic clasp apart and took her phone from inside me. Her voice shook as she told her husband, not knowing how to form the words. She gave as many details as she could and then her voice started to break and she handed the phone over to the man. He explained the same things he had to her and then put the phone down and told her he was on his way back. She remembered him, three years old, running down the beach on holiday, giggling. She wanted to cry but couldn't, not in front of these people. The woman put a cup of tea in front of her. She looked at it but didn't see it. Then she asked what very seriously injured meant and whether he would live. They gave answers she knew they were trained to give and realised that even though she wished they had never come, they hated this too, and she felt sorry for them. Suddenly she knew the relief might be unfounded, that her son might have already died on an operating table. She thought of him dying, perfectly formed and desperately far away without her. And then she remembered the man he said had lost a leg and she adjusted the image on the operating table and her imagination went too far and added injury after injury. It deformed him and he wasn't her son anymore and it was just too much and her face began to crumple and she asked them if they would just give her a moment. She grabbed me from across the table and went out of the room and stumbled upstairs, pulling herself forward with the banister. She put me down on the white painted chair and bent over the toilet and was sick. She was sick again and concentrated on not making any sound, not wanting them to hear. She crawled over to the door and locked it and leant back against it. She felt inside me for tissues and wiped around her mouth and then brushed the tears away from her eyes. She wasn't crying. The tears were from being sick and she wondered why not. She focused on her breathing and waited. There were footsteps below and the woman whose name she couldn't remember was calling up the stairs. She answered impatiently that she was fine, she just needed a minute. She replaced the pack of tissues and left her delicate hand limp in me. It trembled and her rings glinted. Then she clenched her hand until it hurt and her skin whitened and the fine veins bulged blue. She brushed her teeth but couldn't bring herself to look in the mirror. And then she left me and went downstairs. The murmur of voices came from below and a car crunched over the gravel and the dog barked with excitement. 
Her husband's deep voice entered the conversation as the talking continued. It was dark when a car left. Um, so when you thought about writing a book after you, you come out of hospital, did you spend a long time thinking, how am I going to tackle this subject? Or did this idea come to you, this is how I'm going to do it? So, so the, I started painting and drawing because that was my sort of background from fine art. And it, I just never felt I could really say what I wanted to say. And I'd always written a bit at art school, but nothing nothing much. And then I started to write. And actually, I wrote a story from the point of view of animals. And it was pretty crap. And somebody said to me, well, why, why are you writing it from that point of view? Why don't you just write straight? I did this, I did that. Or, you know, if you want to do a novel, novel just turn it into fiction. Mm. But there was something about an altered perspective that um, that felt important for me for lots of reasons, and we could talk about them for a while. while. But essentially, um, a lot of it was about um, having the space to talk about it, to turn it into something new, something creative, to right. be able to talk about the other side. So that what's yeah. important about the book is also that it, it it talks about it talks about the insurgents and my perspective of that life and what that meant to me as a soldier so so the, the objects create this um this sort of distancing that i could then turn it without getting too up myself into art and something a bit bit different and i think one of the reasons was i'd seen some other soldiers who'd written books that were non-fiction and that there was always people who were sort of against that and i and i think just from being a soldier you it's quite a sort of private thing sometimes and no matter what you do, when you tell the story of of a conflict, you can't you you can't um, you can't get everyone's point of view. And there's always going to be people who say, "Oh, well, that didn't happen," or yeah. "It didn't happen like this," or like that. And then there's some sort of political things about the book where I didn't it doesn't mention that it's Af Afghanistan, and of course it is. But there's lots of my experiences from Iraq that are in there. Hmm. Um, so yeah, and, and also I was just it, I just really enjoyed doing it that way as well. It sort of allowed me to do it. Yeah, well, it is a very, uh, very good book, a very moving book, and very interesting. And this uh, podcast, which is, you know, uh, we're, we're discussing the IED in the next couple of uh, episodes, um, it gives a lot of information. And it is ex sort of exactly what I wanted, you know, how they made a bomb using fertilizer and, and these very sort of everyday things, which then turn into this sort of terrifying object that can just destroy life yeah so one of the objects is a, is a bag of fertilizer and that sort of travels around a bit and then the, what, another object is the ied being made um and, and it's not sort of you can't it's not a recipe i, I was quite careful that it wasn't sort of scientific fact that if someone read my book they'd be able to make a yeah. bomb but it, it's close enough i think and um i think it was just interesting for me to think about who who the people were who made the bomb um, from and it's completely imagined, but it's based on my experience being there and the sort of you know, the thing, the knowledge through intelligence and, and the, that job that I did. And I and I suspect it's not too far off the mark. And also just this, this idea that these, as you said, these everyday objects can be turned into something that that is so lethal. The thing that for me, the thing that was very interesting coming home was that there were sort of headlines saying the cowardly the cowardly Taliban 
you know, how dare they use these the, the, these these IEDs to defeat us? You know, it's really ca- some in some way it's cowardly to use an IED. And as a soldier, that seemed quite strange because and in the book, um, so there's an IED, but there's also a drone, and the drone drops a, a missile, uh, and it, it kills some civilians in in that moment. And I was very interested in the fact that that how a drone which is at 10,000 feet and you could be in sleep in your bed how that could just fall on your house and, and blow you up and that felt no less cowardly and and I suppose that's because you just use what you have in a war war isn't cowardly or not it's um it's uh it's a uh, it, it it's um you, you know you do what you can with the with the with the equipment you have and of course people say oh well you know the law of armed conflict you know mines mines are you know you know you can't use mines and things but you have to remember the sort of asymmetry of this of this conflict if that makes sense and what i mean by that is the fact that we had all this kit all these systems and radios and protection yeah. and there was, every time i went on patrol there's an apache above me or something else you know and and they had very little and it was ever thus i mean you know we like talking about fighter pilots in the second world war above the channel dueling because it's a very clear fight between two men who are soldiers or airmen um, but most war is not like that it's 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 refugees being machine gunned on the side of roads and um, people starving and it always seems to come back to you know if these things are going to happen you've got to get it done over done as fast as possible short and sharp so um PTSD is talked about a lot. You mentioned it earlier. And and um, I think the first time I'd heard about it in the sort of modern context was was our men coming back from the Falklands and that they'd learned a little bit about it because the men coming back on the boats had had a couple of weeks on the boat coming back and that they could decompress. But then I've since talked to people who said those those men had, some of them had real grave problems 20 years later. Uh, or even now they're being dealt you know they're mm. having to have treatment now your book was it a cathartic displacement for you did it did it help no that's not i mean i i remember somebody quite soon after i um had published it was sort of telling me how it must be therapy for me and you know i it, it and i it was an event actually a sort of you know a, a sort of literary event so they were in the audience sort of telling me that i was that this was definitely catharsis and therapy and i sort of said no it wasn't and maybe i was being a bit um they were also implying that i had ptsd and i haven't got it and i think there's a slight misunderstanding about what ptsd is and whether soldiers you you don't have to have ptsd just because you're a soldier but um the book the book uh felt very creative for me actually i really enjoyed writing it I think there's catharsis writing any book. Anyone who's sat down and written 90,000 words mm. and then printed it out, there's a bit of a it's hard work exhaling of breath when you've finally printed out. But I think, you know, for me, any time you, you put... For me, the book was about putting... It's a sort of thought experiment in the world. In a, in a way, I was sort of working out where I'd been and what this conflict was and how I related to the other people who were in it. I, so I don't think it was catharsis in that sense, yeah. but... Looking back, I mean, there's probably a bit of that going on, but I didn't, it wasn't sort of, and hopefully if people read it, they see that it, hopefully it's not sort of navel-gazing um, in that in that sort of sense. I think it's almost the opposite because it's so objective. I was, it burned quite brightly in me, uh, the idea, and so I just carried on with it. 
but it's like anything you know it's it, there are people who i it, you know i can just tell that they, it's not the way they it's, it just doesn't work for them this this idea of the objects um telling the story but just going back to the ptsd thing um because th- i've thought about it a lot recently uh particularly with the with the next book that i've written and um actually there's what's more likely than ptsd when you go through a trauma is ptg post-traumatic growth which is where you um which is where when something awful happens to you and a good example is cancer patients often when they're um when they're diagnosed there is an element of post-traumatic stress but as soon as um treatment starts they start to feel growth and does that mean like you're fighting the fight you're getting you you it means that if you, for whatever reason, as humans, we turn, we can turn something, and it's you know, it, there's there's sayings across all cultures. There's when from from great suffering comes you know, comes hope. And what's the other one that I've always hated? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Oh yes, that's very. It's, it's the idea that um, it's it, and it's bollocks that one. But uh, you know, it's one that gets thrown around a bit. But it's it's this idea that um, the, the sort of hu- as humans we can turn suffering uh, into something that's positive and and it, it, what's strange is the two things can coexist. So you can feel some parts of your life are futile and the world, but also have closer connections, feel more spirituality, um, and and have a more positive outlook on some elements of your life. And I and I just I think what happens sometimes is that. The, the very if you have a bad car crash you you will experience some post-traumatic stress that's your for three months or so you will have nightmares and you'll have you'll ruminate about it and you'll um you'll you'll uh you, you might wake up in the night but what the d is is, is something else that's a that's a that's a switch in the brain which means that you're re-experiencing these things uh for too long and it becomes yeah. a disorder Right, and I, that it's just not the case that all soldiers have that. But I do think so. So the brain um, can, uh, you know, needs time to process a thing, and and it might yeah. do it successfully, but it might get stop stuck. I mean, I've heard of this. I don't know if you heard. I'm sure you have uh, the EDMR as as a way of treating people who are sort of stuck in a loop. Is that sort of considered to be quite a good way of treating people? Or I'm not. I mean, I'm not. There, there are lots of ways. Right. I'm not a. I'm not a um, expert on it, really. I just, I suppose for me, that you know, there are, what, and I, we could talk, you know, that there are, and it happened a little bit. Maybe we can talk about that too. It happened a little bit with the injured soldiers, but because there are people suffering and there are pressure groups and char- charities that need to, we need to look after these people. Mm. But because of the way they sort of market, market themselves and raise money, there's a bit of a danger that you paint everyone with the same brush. And it, we really do need to look after people. And, you know, you look at the sort of suicide statistics and things like that. And they're often painted in a way that make them look worse than they actually are. But de- it's definitely a reality. And I'm really clear that we need to look after it. But also the danger is that you paint a whole load of ex-servicemen who are actually, and service people, should I say, who are out there in society being an asset, getting on with their lives, living very happily, with all with this sort of one brush that we're all a bunch of, um, we're, you know, we're, we're sort You're of about a... about to crack, not, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're all about to crack. And, yeah. you know, we've all got to accept that, as you said earlier, I think there's often a 15-year sort of... Um, spike sometimes in ptsd cases and 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 that happened i think with vietnam and the falklands so you know maybe i will have had need some help but um but I, I just sometimes think it's 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 a it's a bit dangerous to sort of 
paint everyone with the same well not paint i don't mean to put it like that but but you know to 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 to, to be Group two everyone together yes. yeah exactly and i mean a lot has been talked about i mean there's a lot more study and 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 and, and different ways of dealing with it seemingly now than there was uh you know in the days of the first world war and shell shock where they you know yes. if you were an officer you were sent to the loony bin and if you were a soldier you were probably told to just get back in the fight your new book before we move on can we have a little chat about that yeah sure yeah i'm not giving sure. away any have you finished no it? no not at all. i finished it yeah it's so it publishes in in february and um yeah i've just I've just done the final sort of what I've just handed in what I want the acknowledgements to be. So it's quite a nice feeling. What's it about? So it's nonfiction this time. I have actually written another fiction book, but it didn't it didn't trouble the score enough, so it didn't get published, which was um, which was a shame. But you know that's life. Uh, but this is nonfiction. Uh, it's actually published by the Welcome Collection. Uh, so it's a it's a book about Welcome, um, how essentially a, a medical charity, aren't they? Welcome. So the Welcome Trust is a huge medical charity that that supports all sorts of medicine and all, all sorts okay. of things. I think it's the third third biggest philanthropic organisation in the world. I think so. It's huge. Um, and then they have a they have a museum, and it's on the Euston Road. It's really worth a visit. And their their sort of mission is to sort of um, highlight and explain medical things to people. Um, I think their mission is probably a bit more eloquent than that, but to, to sort of explore medical um, medical issues with with people, and and the book is about how technology um, can sort of repair and replace the body, the human body, and what that does to us as humans. And it's written in a sort of series of vignettes, so it's that's why it's called Dispatches. They're sort of me going off to find out different things because obviously it's a huge subject. Yes. But but the idea is that because of my experiences and my dependence on prosthetics that I wear, wear every day, that I have a sort of slight insight into the world and uh, into that world. And so I, it's a sort of narrative nonfiction. Right. And is it that we will be able to pretty much re- rebuild our physical bodies relatively soon? Is that the idea that, you know, so if people are injured in war, they could actually grow an arm back or something? Or so so there's... Um, well, no, I think it's a good, it's a good question. If you, if you, um, so, so regenerative medicine and prosthetics are sort of two fields that are still side by side. And it, it, I think in 50 years time, it will still be some mix of the two and probably prosthetics will still be a big part of it. The problem with any sort of prosthetic is actually how you, attach it to the body the interface so with a with a prosthetic limb it's for me it's the rubbing the itching the the way it has an impact on my musculoskeletal body you know it causes me back pain and all those sorts of things uh with a deep brain stimulator in the brain once you put something that's inorganic into the brain even though it's stopping someone with parkinson's shake uh there is immediately a um a, a sort of foreign body response or often there is and um that can have an impact so it's a sort well, of rejection of, yeah uh, rejection yeah, okay. i mean not always but because we have clever ways of stopping it mm. but uh for instance with a if you put electrodes into the brain often the body will wall it off with scar tissue and that's fine but what it means is that that device becomes less effective because the electrical current that you're putting through it you have to turn it up essentially and then that can cause more damage to the tissue because 
tissue doesn't really like being zapped very much. Um, and so over time, the device gets less effective. And I mean, the costs of medicine are in everything. You know, we, we we're actually we're, we're really aware of it. Every time we take a pill, when it starts working on the body, it will reduce the pain or stop some disease but it'll also often almost always have some side effect yeah and the thing about regenerative medicine is you you get around that because you're you're creating you're, you're creating something that is exactly the same as the body if that makes sense so there's, there's very little um rejection or cost uh but i think and that's maybe 200 years away from, wow. and we can do it in certain things we can make certain we can regenerate certain organs, certain types of tissue, cartilage and things. But as soon as you're talking about anything that's more complex than, you know, an esophagus or something, it becomes very difficult to do. Yes. And, that, and that's all that stem cell stuff. Right. And so your book w- will be published into the general market and or is it to be sort of sold within the Wellcome Trust's world and promoted there? No, it's very much. This is very much for the world. So you hopefully you'll see it on bookshelves. It's um it's a funny time in publishing. There's no there's no paper around and things like that because of the like with everything. It's, it's at sea somewhere with everything else. Yeah, yeah. There's around. all that stuff. No, but this is very much. You know, it's on Amazon and it's it's very much. Um, you know, hopefully it'll make it'll make the uh, make the bookshelves if I'm lucky. Okay, we're nearly there. IEDs, the sort of lessons. One of the things that I remember from my time in the army, and I had a much easier time than you did because it was the 80s, was the humour. Does that, uh, can you tell me anything about the, you know, on, in your in Afghanistan or Iraq, some of the, you know, the ways that men cope with the pressures of being mortared or the threat of being blown up by an ID? Well, I, I mean, I, I can't think of anything specific, but there was definitely that... Um, there was definitely the, the humour that ran through a lot of military units um, and kept us going. I do. I, I mean, when I think about it, it was pretty tough going. That that we off we, we'd have so any patrol would have four, what we called a barmer team. So barmer was the sort of code word for what we did: the sweeping of the ground with with a metal detector, and they would essentially walk in front of a of the vehicle, sweeping the ground and listening for a spike in the noise that would say there was something metal, then they would put up their hand to pause everyone. Everyone would lie down on the floor and they would start digging around with their hands or a little shovel to see if there was a device in there. And when you put it like that, it's pretty bonkers. You know, you're asking soldiers to get lie on their fronts and use their fingers to sort of pull away at the, at the ground. Um, and, and then when they had found that it was just an old shell case or just, you know, an old Tin coin or something, yeah. exactly, then you would, you would, um, you would carry on. Uh, and, and then, of course, you know, the enemy made low metal content devices, mm. which were very hard to detect. So, but just going back to your, your question about um, humour and things, I think, you know, they, that, that was degrading on people. It was quite, you know, doing that for 20 hours, um, and that sort of pressure it was was hard. Was a hard sort of. You know, there, there were some very brave people. I think is what I'm saying. But in general, the sort of what you'd expect, the humour and the banter, existed very much throughout all of my service. I think. Um, I think sometimes where. 
you know, we don't really talk about it much, but where if, especially in Iraq, actually, but also in Afghanistan, when a soldier says to you, you know, especially when somebody's been killed in your platoon, then they say, why are we here? And you have to sort of then trot off the party line about the fact that you're in Afghanistan because because the it's where we're reducing the threat to us to the streets in London. It's quite it's quite hard to sell that, especially when everyone ha- at home is sort of saying, "Well, why the hell are we in all these in these conflicts when they have no impact or existential threat to the UK?" And I think when there's no when when you're sort of sent on an operation where there's less of a connection between your your sort of homeland and what you're doing, I think there is more of a stress potentially on on things like the, that banter and combat yes. the sort of Fubar. combat force. Yeah, a little bit. And I and I you Vietnam's probably quite a good in you know a, a good case study for that. Where of course there was all the humour, but actually it was yeah. it was pretty tough on them because they were it was um, so difficult to sort of reconcile why why you were there. Yeah. Well, one of the, I mean, one of the most difficult books to read by the time you get to the end is Catch-22. It's so funny and it gets so yeah. sad as you get to yeah. the end. By then you're completely pulled into it and it's it's horrendous. Yeah. And it's so, you know, humour is sort of the other side of howling and, and yeah. crying. And yeah, no, well, I think, you know, the where, where the, I suppose where I remember the humour more was so if you imagine having been flown back and lost both legs, lying in a ward of six soldiers and there being you know two working legs and five i can't you know i can't do the math but five working arms or whatever somebody with their hands sewn into their stomach so that they could regenerate or they could grow new skin over the top of the hand another person who who's who um whose eyesight was had gone and then another person who you know the actually the 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 banter in there you know we'd say would you so who who would you swap my injuries for your injuries and they we'd all be saying oh no i wouldn't have yours and then and then you know yours i would definitely and then there'd be somebody who'd gone deaf somebody who could couldn't see and then somebody who who couldn't speak and so between the three of us you know no one could we were just shouting or telling each other to shut up or or trying to read for each other and then Every time they came in and sort of debrided our wounds, which meant they sort of basically scraped away at the scabs. To, it was bloody painful. And, you know, we'd sort of shout, oh, you've been shot by a sniper again and things like that. So that sort of mm. banter um, definitely still existed and was part of, you know, that I think that was something that carried through into rehab. And I I suspect you wouldn't have had that connection and and humor had it been a bunch of people who'd been you know people who hadn't been through the same experience yeah and sort of post recovery of hospital time anyway when you're when you're sort of getting back into your life uh this was sort of a question really that jamie was talking to me about because he has experienced some of this himself because he's blind Mm. is is the sort of the contrasting thing of of the threats you feel from people the sort of stupid encounters as he called it and the kindness of others and just how we treat people who have injuries today whether they're disabled from birth or whether they've had accidents or whether they've been in the forces what do you have anything you can well i I think you know i think jamie's Jamie's got such a great sort of outlook on life. Um, but, and I, and I, and, and it, I think there is, you know, there's the, there's definitely, I think if you're disabled, you do, you do see the sort of human kindness and you do feel 
support in a lot of ways. But I still think there's there's so many people, so many people who just don't know how to talk about disability at all. And it and I and and I think sometimes that can be interesting to watch and can come across as feeling you know it can make you feel a bit strange or or sort of and and it's 90% of the time or 99% of the time it's not people being cruel or certainly not in my experience but um but I do I do think um that, that having a disability does definitely change your your outlook on on life and the way that you interact with people around you in society and I think the the sort of the I suppose the the greatest thing that I um that that I the the sort of the greatest punishment if you like for my injury is actually how it makes me more anxious about being free you know if I was going on holiday or even you know just in everything you're always slightly anxious about you know getting lost or your leg breaking or 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 some some getting an infection or having to go back into hospital or you know all those things that that is you you have to work quite hard that's quite a sort of big cognitive load if you like throughout your life and if you were to okay you know if you were to tell somebody who hasn't got an injury a sort of one thing that's good a good way to react to people or is it is that just too dumb I mean you know as an example when I I was a volunteer at the Olympics and I saw there's a picture of you out there at the 2012 Olympics carrying the flame I think that's you isn't it that Mm, is yeah yeah and I was just one of those guys wearing this nylon tracksuit in in at the rowing lake um but they trained us a bit and um one of the things they said when you're dealing with somebody pushing a wheelchair is to talk to the person in the wheelchair not to the person pushing it and and it was it's so obvious but in a way people do that they talk to the people on the same height as them and they consider the person in the wheelchair sort of to be you know not capable of mm. having conversations so what's your because i noticed that you you wear shorts all the time for instance so that mm. indicates to people that you've not got your legs i mean yeah it's a sort of well it's partly a practical thing so because right. because they're it's both practical because I mean, they're, they're not that comfortable so i can take them off much more easily but but it's probably more about communication it shows people why you need a bit more time and space and why you might be limping a bit and why you can't go up the stairs as quick um but in terms of how you i mean it's just about being human really and and meeting everyone at a at a at a level playing field i think um and and I and I've written about it a bit, and I've talked to Jamie about it a lot. It's it's this it's the you know I'm both you know people will ask you if you need help when you don't need help at all. You're just getting on with your own business, and it's sometimes quite difficult not to tell them to you know f off, sod off. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know sometimes you really do need help, and when people don't bother giving you that help, that's um, yeah, you know that, that's also difficult. So, so I, you know, it's, I, I think it's difficult, but I think just being human and it just, if, you know, if, and, and exactly you know, that example is so good, you know, just treating people as humans and, and mm. talking to them, you know, even though they're in a wheelchair, it, it's so crucial. And it's, I mean, but you see it in all parts of life, even, even just in people who don't, they, 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 they don't introduce someone who's with them. Even yes. though that it's you, so you know, obvious that, that that's of, yes that yes. uncomfortable dynamic, yeah. but yeah. I, I mean, and and some of it is done out of n- not malice at all. I mean, I because I've spent a lot of time now with Jamie, and I've got you know I don't even sort of 
consider his thing. I mean, I noticed a, a thing today because my dog, my daughter's dog, barks at people. And I'm trying to work out why he's never barked at Jamie. I would have thought he'd have been the person he'd have barked at most. Um, and because he's a lurcher and he's very much an eye dog, it's, it's, he starts barking at when they look at him and challenge him through their eyes. And of course, look, Jamie's waving his stick around and patting him or patting Maggie. or mm. you know, But the one thing he's not doing is staring at him in the eye. And I've, yeah. and, and, and I, I've noticed when I see other blind people around, I've got a better sense of when I should help them, what you were saying about when you don't and do need help. So if I see them hovering near a road, I will go up and say, not mm. loudly in their ear, so they jump up. But, you know, I'll say, would you like, would you like a hand across mm. the road? But when yeah. they're obviously doing something they're used to doing, I'll just leave them alone. And, I, and, yeah. I, and it's just through having a little bit of experience with somebody. Yeah. Could experience and common sense. Hmm. I, I mean, Jamie, um, it, we have, I've talked about this about Jamie, because Jamie, you know, Jamie says things like, you know, he'll, he'll give a best man speech or write a letter in the paper. Oh, I wouldn't or something. like him to be my best man. Oh, my goodness. That would be but, terrible. But everyone right? sort of be like says, a roast. Oh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but he, but he, what he says is people sort of are more congratulate. You know, they sort of congratulate you more because they feel that your disability is, it sort of challenge makes you, makes you more challenged in every way. And I, I think the other flip flip side of that, and I think that's part of what you've just described, is that when you when you are if you're with people for a long, when they're your friends or you're with them a long time, you start not to the disability falls away. They, you start not to notice the disability. Um, and I think that's really interesting that, you know, if I work with people for a long time, they start not to see yeah. the disability. You're no longer defined by that. That's just something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, if you could give that, bottle that and give it to everyone so that they weren't defining anyone by their disability, you know, that would help in a sense because people would be, they wouldn't be afraid to approach them or ask them if they need help. They would just be sort of completely human towards them. Yeah. Well, I think we're pretty much there. I just wanted to say, is there anything... Back to the IED, anything that you could add or that we should do about IEDs or we should understand about IEDs, or is that a ridiculous idea? It's just that they're a fact of life in conflict zones. No, I, th I think the only thing I'd say is that they are, you know, that there was a sort of arms race of IEDs as well. So, so they were always trying to defeat the capabilities and our techniques because actually the the main way that we got around these IEDs was through our was a little bit through technology but a lot through our techniques our our procedures to make sure that we didn't stumble into them or we found them and there was one from Northern Ireland which I'm sure you know is the five and twenties checks where you check five meters around you to see if there's anything that looks out of place it might be you know the ground's been dug up or there's some sort of sub metal or substance that looks I don't know odd. that one. I've what was the 20 bit? So you do five meters right around you. Yeah. And, and, and then you do 20 meters of to slightly, check further. Yeah. Yeah. And then it became, it became the five. Well, I was in the army. I think it became the 520 and 200. So you then check for sort of firing point. So you're not always too looking too much in the vicinity and yeah. you're looking out. And, and that's what I mean. So in my time in the army, it sort of developed because, you know, we had to develop what was going on and actually, when I was blown up, the tech, the tech, the, the, there would have been a, right, we need to reassess, you know, after Harry's been an idiot and got himself blown up, we need to reassess whether what he did was right or wrong. And actually sort of the, the enemy was always 
making very ingenious different IEDs, ones that were hanging at eye level or were on the sides of irrigation ditches. And and in that sense, it's a pretty gritty business, you know, that the, these different, you know, that that you're 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 trying to stay one step ahead of something that is essentially trying to, you know, what is trying to maim and damage you and cause as much destruction as possible. In our next podcast, we're going to be talking to a surgeon. So we will learn from from their point of view, you know, how they deal with young men and women who come in with terrible injuries like you have. So, Harry, thank you for that. As I suspected, the meagre acronym IED gives no true indication of the devastating effect that such a device can have on a person's life and the lives of those they love. I've no doubt that what you've told me today helps to redress that in some measure. I'm very grateful to you for you sharing your story with us, a story of courage, fortitude and hope. Thank you, Harry. I salute you. Thanks for having me on. It's been, it's been great. Thank you. So it goes. Next week, we will publish part two of this three-part series on the IED, the improvised explosive device. I interviewed Dr. Tom Carroll, a vascular specialist who completed two tours in Afghanistan as a combat surgeon. Please pass this podcast on to a friend. You can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck.